Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Nick Briggs, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the fleshy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I literally could not come up with anything else. I apologize. My name is Tony Whip, and today we have a not-at-all-fleshy three-person discussion panel. That is just awful. <laughs> Including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> Ah, oh, the flesh time. Uh, there's our <laughs> intermediate call this level. The cackle of madness, or it might as well be. There's preliminary. Our... There's preliminary. our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes, has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> and finally, there's our semi novice fan. One who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done this podcast. And this time it's the wise and witty Allison Pitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, though I somehow doubt that, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetpc. Depending on the amount you give from once you receive among other possible goodies, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book since we know you have so many of them, you store them all on microchips. Yeah, there's not yeah. much else we can do with that one, is there? <laughs> Pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, that's how we read these damn things. They're stored on microchips. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Milton Welling. We'd also like to welcome our newest patron who just joined this week, Louise Dennis. Thank you all. Thank you, thank, Ooh, thank you. you, and welcome, Louise. 
Yes, absolutely. Thank you. We hope you don't regret the decision. Uh, we also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's first season as the Doctor as we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of For to Doomsday. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who: Forged Doomsday, adapted by Terence Dix from the script by Terence Dudley, that aired from 1882 to 1862, published by Target Books in July 1983. As of this recording in February 2023, this title is out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. You will notice it is not Doctor Who and Forged Doomsday, or Doctor Who and the Forged Doomsday, because now we're getting into very odd titles of Doctor Who stories compared to what they used to be. But that's fine. As we mentioned last time, Peter Davison's first story in full playing the Doctor was not Castrovalva, it was instead this one. Davison was initially frustrated by a few things at the beginning of his tenure, mainly the instruction to make his portrayal as far as Tom Baker's as possible without actually telling him how to do this. <laughs> not to mention John Nathan Turner's insistence on keeping the question mark lapels from Baker's shirt and having the doctor wear a stick of celery on his lapel. God only knows. Complex layer. Yes, just a little bit. Davison credits an appearance on Pebble Mill at One, which was kind of like a call-in show type of thing for kids, I believe, in which a young caller suggested that he play it as Tristan Farnan with bravery and intellect. And indeed, if you watch Peter Davison in All Creatures Great and Small before watching him here, I'm actually making my slow way through that show now because I never actually watched it all the way through. You can absolutely see him putting this to work. The Fifth Doctor is essentially Tristan Farnan without the smoking, without the womanizing, and a lot more brave and a lot less stupid. In short, this may be his first story, but it doesn't really show. What does show, however is how little acquainted writer Terrence Dudley is with this show, despite putting in the requisite continuity references that this era will become infamous for. We already know Dudley from having read his dire novelization of his equally dire story, K-9 and Company. It's the same guy. Though the main reason that he was hired to do this story to fill in for one that had fallen through was that he was a very quick writer. That does show, unfortunately. Davison was said to be irritated by the plot holes in this one, though he may also have not been happy to be working on something of Dudley's to begin with, because Terrence Dudley had served as a director on many episodes of All Creatures Great and Small, and he was the only director that Davison ever lost his temper with in his entire career. Mm. So that tells us something about Terrence Dudley. Matthew Waterhouse also does not like this story for reasons which are absolutely obvious, but since so few people like Matthew Waterhouse, no one really cares. <laughs> Nissa is also poorly served this time around, though this is still the best time to do an introduction of the actress who plays her, which we've been putting off. We'll introduce Janet Fielding next time. Sarah Sutton was born in 1961 and started acting at the age of nine in a stage production of Winnie the Pooh as Baby Rue. Oh, that sounds lovely. Mm. She's also the youngest British actress ever to play Alice in Alice of Wonderland on screen at the age of 11. I think that was an animated version, but still, she's the youngest British actress to ever play that part. 
And before Doctor Who, she made appearances in 1978's The Moon Stallion and a 1980 production of The Crucible, which I need to track down because I need to hear Sarah Sutton doing her best American accent. <laughs> Though I have a feeling it's not going to be a totally American accent because it's The Crucible. Yeah. As we've mentioned before, she was originally only going to appear in The Keeper of Trocken, but John Nathan Turner decided to include her as a new companion at the last moment. This last-minute edition of Nyssa means there's at least one story this season that uses the 60s trope of having a companion quote-unquote go on vacation, so to speak, <laughs> because she was contracted for two episodes less than the season total. That's actually going to be the next story. Okay. Yeah, so Nyssa will very briefly be in the next story. She'll only be at the beginning of episode one and the end of episode four. Is that just kind of an error in contract negotiations or intentional? Well, it's an error in contract negotiations. It's because she got included so late in the day. And the script for the next story had already been written. There was absolutely no way to restructure it to include her character. Hmm for reasons which will become really obvious when we finally read the book. Trust me, it makes a lot more sense with Nissa not being there. After leaving the show, she retired from acting for a bit to get married and raise her daughter. But she did appear briefly in Peter Davison's final story, and in the 1993 Abomination Dimensions in Time. And yes, we will be reading a fan-written novelization of that story, which promises to be much, much better than the televised version. You uh, really came to get down tonight, didn't you? <laughs> I certainly did. In fact, I was just about to say that a rusty nail through the temple would be better than sitting through Dimensions in Time, but yeah. When Big Finish began its audio series, she reprised her role as Nyssa, where the character has been greatly expanded upon, and she's also done numerous other roles in audio since then. One other bit of trivia. Davison is the one responsible for having himself credited as the Doctor from here on out, pointing out that the character's name is not Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. So until 1981, it read in the credits as Doctor Who. Hmm. From 81 onward, it's the Doctor. His future son-in-law, David Tennant, would make the same request when he took over the role decades later. So the first season of the new series, Christopher Eccleston is credited as Doctor Who, and David Tennant and every other doctor has been credited as the doctor. Hmm, I've never noticed that. <laughs> yep. It's all down to Peter Davison. <laughs> yeah. So we need a dramatic reading of the back cover. Dalton, would you be willing to do the honors on this one? I will. Um, real quick, though, one thing that I don't think that I've ever realized or we've maybe not talked about. You mentioned that Davison kind of was frustrated because they, he was just told to make his doctor different than Tom Baker's. Yeah. Was the decision of the doctor's personality basically up to the actor playing him? Not always. Okay. Here's a weird thing about it, though. It's generally considered to be between the producer and the actor. Okay. So they decide on the characterization. In Tom Baker's case, they met him. They realized what sort of person he was. <laughs> Terrence Dix wrote that first script with Tom Baker's personality in mind, which is why he is such a goofball in that first story. Mm -hmm. John Pertwee was told by the producers to play it as himself. And John Pertwee said, I don't know how to do that. I've never played myself. Mm. Patrick Troughton. Oh, my God. The stories behind that one. Patrick Troughton at one point was going to play it dressed up like a pirate. <laughs> 
They were also thinking of having him do blackface and play it as that sort of character. Yeah. That didn't go through. No. Instead, he decided to go the Charlie Chaplin route, which was really interesting given that Hartnell was the one who was actually more into wanting a comedic role and played it fairly straight. But basically what happened with Davison is this, and this is the, the perfect time to launch into this, I think. I'm glad you asked this. John Nathan Turner wanted what he thought would be a personality actor. He wanted somebody like Tom Baker who would come into the part with a strong personality that would basically just fill up the role. Davison, however, is more of a character actor. And that distinction is that much like Patrick Troughton, if you see Peter Davison in other roles, he's very different quite often from role to role to role. Okay. So it's not Peter Davison's personality that overwhelms the whole thing, like Tom Baker's did. So he was just told to play it differently than Tom Baker's. So when he heard this kid call into this phone-in show and say, I think you should be like Tristan Farnan, he thought, okay, Tristan Farnan, but brave. I can do this. Okay. And that's what stamps the fifth doctor. Gotcha. It still makes for a very, what's the word I'm looking for? A very squishy characterization. It's really going to only be in the next few stories that you're going to see the fifth doctor emerge distinctly because Four to Doomsday just doesn't let him do that, really. If you're asking because you still don't know what the fifth doctor's like, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> it was mostly just because it was just interesting hearing that basically it was kind of up to him. So I didn't know, yeah, if like in the past, if they had kind of had an idea of what they wanted for the doctor. And so they looked for an actor that could fulfill that. Or like you were saying, if it was more, we have an idea of who we want. So we kind of write the character based around their strengths. Mm -hmm. Or if it's something that, yeah, it comes fully fleshed out as like, this is what we want. Play it like this. I don't care yeah. what your past roles have been. <laughs> I think it's quite often based around the actor because Colin Baker is known for quite boisterous roles. And so the sixth doctor is quite boisterous. Sylvester McCoy did comedy routines. So his doctor is quite comedic. Paul McGann's an odd one, <laughs> mm. but then his doctor is also sometimes hard to pin down and sometimes very easy to pin down. So yeah, if you go through each and every one of the doctors, there's a different process that comes through with their producers saying, I want this and I want that. Okay. So dramatic reading. Yes, yes, now that we've had that aside. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It's much more interesting than the story we're about to discuss. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I have to suspect Dalton asked that just so he could get out of discussing the story. But No, that's I understand that impulse, but yeah, go I, ahead. I, I cannot lie. I, there's no ruse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, when the TARDIS happens to materialize on an alien spacecraft, the commander of the ship, the reptilian monarch, invites the Doctor and his companions to continue their journey to Earth in his company. Monarch's hospitality even extends to a generous offer to liberate the time travelers from the shortcomings of their bodies and replicate them as androids. So much more practical. Although Adric finds his proposal extremely attractive, the Doctor has good reason to be suspicious of Monarch's motives. Hmm. Mm. The cadence of that is really odd, isn't it? 
Yeah, I feel like there's punctuation missing or... Yeah. Oh, who knows? With the target novelization, there's always something missing. In this case, well, there's plenty missing. There are so many errors in this book. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Allison, what was your first impression upon getting this book? Well, that I was going to read it, and then time got away from me. And if you recall the last one, I have many times, in, uh, as COVID started, done the book on tape rather than reading. I take tape as if I'm actually renting an audio cassette from library or the Cracker Barrel or something, an audio <laughs> recording, just for various schedule reasons. But last time I specifically did not want to do that because this is a doctor that I do not have any feel for what comes to his voice and movements. I've seen many images of him, a few clips, but I, I wanted to get sort of a sense of how the novelizations were characterizing him. Right. And, of course, in the first novel, characterized him as nearly dead because <laughs> of the, um, well, of the uh, regeneration trauma that I now know Tony finds somewhat wearying and exasperating. Yes. But that was a characterization that actually worked. He is, you know, vulnerable, almost feeble. That's not going to be how he's portrayed later on, but that's the state of mind there. So for this one, I was concerned it might be narrated by Peter Davison. And I wouldn't get this sense of novelization, but it is, in fact, narrated by Matthew Waterhouse. Indeed it is. And released in 2017, so fairly recently. Yep. And as we listened to it, I thought it was pretty game of him, considering this is not a story that dwells on Adric's finer qualities. No. So, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and oh, Lord. he plays it pretty straight. I mean, I know that, you know, he's not producing and directing the audio, but he doesn't really make fun of it or himself or the story at all. On here. So my first impression was that I am not a fan of the photo covers they go to no. in this God, no. era, but that I was interested in getting more of a feel for this doctor. And I, this is getting ahead of first impressions or behind first impressions, but I did not feel I got much of a feel at all from this mm. novelization for this doctor. That makes sense. Dalton, how about you? Yeah, I'm with Allison. The photo covers are bad. <laughs> we've only had two and the last one was not horrible but it's not great and this one is just ugh. the composition's bad i feel like monarch should be at least moved a little to the left so the doctor looks like he's looking at him even <laughs> yes. though he's looking away i don't know just first look i don't like this the title made me think of a little callback to star trek the four to beam up instead of four to doomsday <laughs> um looking forward to seeing more of davison and i feel like i got a, a little bit of him in this mm -hmm. but yeah just not a whole lot here and the more i kept reading the more i was glad this was a short book <laughs> it did feel short to me because as, as i told you last <laughs> night i ended up having to read the damn thing twice yeah. Once because I was reading it in the commute and completely forgot to make notes and then had to go back through it and do the notes. And it's like, okay, this does not improve with a second reading. Yeah. I'm blanking out on the title of the book that I did that with where I actually read it and then did the audiobook because it was just, my brain refused to retain it. It was the one where Nissa is introduced and the new appearance oh, of the master. Uh, Keeper of Trocken. Where I, yes, where, where I had had such a terrible time actually getting my brain to bother to go through the motions of visualizing any of it. I yeah. did have that experience with the first part of this book, although I feel like it did pick up more about halfway through. I think that is indicative 
And we're going to see it in the next one, too, because I've started reading that one just to see, because I've heard that Dix was less than impressed with these two scripts. And we've seen this before with Dix. Whenever he is not impressed with a script, you will know it mm-hmm. based on the amount of work he puts into it. Well, it has... I tried to remember it, the use of the words a contemptible joke or something. Yes. Uh, phrase you somewhere in the book. You know, oh, yeah. The last book and ones before it, there have been several books where I thought that the writer was making fun of the script. And then I look back in the credits and realize that they were adapting their own script. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, <laughs> if it was any kind of ribbing, it was ribbing their own work. But in this case, mm-hmm. yeah, this was the first time where it was, you know, a different writer. Yeah, Dix doesn't like the script any more than we do. Of course, I don't have any documentary evidence of this except for the book. But yeah, I specifically noted in my notes that bit where he says something about a stupid joke that the doctor has made. That's Mm -hmm. like, ooh, okay. And I also notice that Dix has taken out some of the stupider jokes. Really? There are worse ones. Here we go. Monarch treated the feeble joke with the contempt it deserved. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, it's not the best joke for the doctor to be delivering. In fact, it's not the best joke for anybody to be delivering. Well, I I was curious if in the episode it's played as a lame joke or if that was Terrence Dick's commentary on it. It sounds like it's the commentary. It's very much kind of a dad joke, Mm. but... It's not great. In fact, a lot of the humor, the intentional humor, I should say, in this story, it doesn't come off too terribly well. There was another instance of that where the doctor's talking to Lin Futu and he makes a comment and it says that either the Mandarin failed to understand the doctor's joke or is polite enough to ignore it. And I don't yes. understand the joke. I don't either. You're not polite enough to ignore it. <laughs> yeah. I read over it like four times being like, how is this a pun or anything? And I could not make any sense of what he was trying to get at. That's actually the same chapter as the feeble joke line. And in my notes, I actually have that quoted, the bit about Lin Futu, and it says, Jesus, wept. that was meant to be a joke. <laughs> I don't see it either. I honestly don't, because who knows what the fuck was going through Terrence Dudley's mind, except for anti-Asian racism, apparently, because later on in the story, when the doctor is saying something about the cricket ball, and he says he used to bowl a bean googly, which is cricket turn, Dix has changed that from the original line. The original line that Peter Davison delivers is, I used to bowl a wicked Chinaman. And then he looks at one of the Chinese androids a little shamefaced. And it's like, oh, oh, no, no, no. Because Chinaman actually is a um, a term in cricketing. Oh, God. Yeah. It's actually not terrible to have him immediately realize it was a mistake and learn to do better in the future. Right. That's true. <laughs> there is still the usage of the word Oriental described the people as well, though. Oh, of course. <laughs> It's only 1983. I mean, what do you expect, Dalton? What am I asking for? I wasn't even born yet. I know. These people are still living in the Stone Ages. (laughs) (laughs) Woke still means someone that's just come out of a sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what do we think of the It's a Small World After All theme ship? Because I actually thought it was interesting as an early 80s retread of what, think of the more of a 
60s-70s kind of motif, sort of international style of architecture. Her second Disney reference, the small world after all, but Epcot Center, sort of 60s and 70s utopian vision of the future. I'm not even sure it's that. I think it's not well thought out enough to be that. Because, well, for one thing, and we might as well just dive right into it, the whole timeline of this book is faulty because there's some line about, oh, well, Monarch's trying to learn how to travel faster than light. He's managed to double the speed of the ship with each trip. And it's like, okay, apparently if you do the maths, they don't work out that he's been to Earth a lot more recently and frequently than the maths actually allow for. I guess that's the reason why Terrence Dudley chooses these four particular groups, ethnic groups as he calls them. But I have to say this, as somebody who has been to Epcot and has enjoyed Epcot, I would probably really have to engage in some terrible form of self-harm if I had to go through those recreationals as often as they have. (laughs) Well, obviously it turns out to be a nightmare, not a utopian dream, but... It, it's into the 60s or 70s. I mean, wasn't there a shout out in the intro to the last one, not only to MC Eicher, but also to, was it the Barbican Center? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is, seems like a kind of a shout out to the future envision when the Kennedy Center was constructed, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this would be sort of the culture and entertainment of the future. Yeah. It initially looks kind of idyllic, and then it quickly becomes, even on the page, I thought, intentionally portrayed as tiresome. Yes. But I thought that actually worked when we find out that these are not the original people. Yeah. That these are actually programmed androids who have retained the imprint of those original people. Yeah. But do not become weary of recycled entertainment the way actual people would. I would hope not, because the question isn't, do androids stream of electric sheep? It's, do androids ever get bored to fucking death? Because no. apparently not. Well, I do not. And then the reveal later that Monarch actually isn't an android and has been in the flesh time this whole time, which we have to get to because Christ almighty, the story has incredibly bad internal logic. He's perfectly fine sitting through the same things over and over every day, the same old thing, peas, cheese, and chocolate pudding. <sighs> Monarch's just an otaku, Tony. <laughs> Well, I think even otakus would get sick of watching the same goddamn anime from start to finish over and over again. Does does Monarch actually attend the programming every day? He watches them. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. watches it on his screens. And you have to wonder who that recreational is for if there are only four androids that actually have sentience, which would be Bygone and Linfutu and Kikuchi and um, the the Princess Princess Viagra. As Princess Viagra. Good branding. <laughs> uh, money to be made off of that. So oh, there's a sexist joke in there somewhere about a completely silent woman being the only thing that could give a man an erection every time. Oh, my God. Oh. Don't write new material for Adric. Uh, <laughs> I know, well, right? Before we go to, to that particularly delectable section, yes. only four have sentience, but the others do have some kind of emotional life i thought like no they have a desire to dominate their own ethnic group on earth right only those four yeah 
Was it only those only four? Only those four. Okay. Yep. They're the ones that are going to be given control of their quote-unquote respective ethnic groups, even though in the princess's case, her ethnic group is gone. And Kikuchi's group is not only greatly diminished, but also he doesn't seem to want dominance over it anyway, because he thinks he's on walkabout and is going to heaven. Yeah. I thought that the bit of an idea that worked in there is the idea of dividing and conquering the earth by appealing to individual vanity and desire for power. Oh, you can rule your people. Yeah. That actually was the sort of the grain that I will probably retain after this is kind of an interesting idea. Hopefully the rest of it will be purged from my mind, possibly through some kind of chemical process. Yeah, that's the thing about this damn story. There are seeds of several good alien invasion stories here, but they're all thrown into the same packet <laughs> and planted together, and the plant you get is terrifying. Mm, ragweed. It just blooms into this horror <laughs> thing. Yes, exactly. It's just miserable. I don't think seeds will actually cross pollinate or crossbreed within the packet. But... <laughs> no, well, probably not, but they certainly but do in this story. It would be terrifying if they did. And much yeah. more interesting than what we read. Yes. Yeah. Just a wildflower medley. <laughs> so reading the back cover, I thought this was going to be a Cybermen story. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. That would make sense. That, yeah. That would have been much more interesting. It would have been much more interesting, and it's kind of in line with what the Cybermen in the new series kind of do. They basically like take people and turn them into Cybermen. So... Yeah, discovering that that's not what happened and that it's really this kind of paper story that's just kind of barely holding itself together. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about all the inconsistencies, shall we? And for those listeners who think all we do is rag on these things, we will, before the end of this episode, try desperately to find something positive to say about this. I will also say the last two or three years, we've had a lot that we've liked. Yes, we have. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have. In fact, we've had quite a bit that we've liked. This is the first time that I think we've all three agreed that something was a clinker. No, we've had, we have had concurrence before. No, no, we've had <laughs> concurrence before. It's just, it's been a while since we've all concurred quite this much because, oh boy. <laughs> I think you're being kind when you say that there are inconsistencies. <laughs> the strategy never adhered in my head enough for me to think in terms of there being enough of a strategy to be inconsistent within itself. Yeah. I did not understand the repeated trips, maybe, is my yeah. my main confusion. I can't either. I don't know why they do it. And not one that I bothered to try to clarify either. The stated reason in the book is that Monarch wants to mine Earth for all the silicon so that he can create more androids. But the question is... He's traveling all that way from Urbanka just to get silicon. There are other sources of silicon in the galaxy and mm -hmm. probably in his own solar system. Why on earth does he have to come 35? I think that that's just it. They never give us a distance, do they? They say that the first trip was something like 35,000 years ago or something like that. That's when he took Kukuchi or something. But why? Why bother? Why not just mine it when you're there in the first place? Because there are fewer people that you would have to even worry about. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or maybe my confusion was specifically, why does he pick up people every time? Yeah. I understand going back for multiple mining trips, but... 
I have no idea. What What's he holding them for? Well, I mean, we know what he's holding them for, but why go back and forth many times? Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, so that's one thing. <laughs> that doesn't make any damn sense in the story. It actually makes so little sense that I'm pretty sure I missed something obvious. You probably didn't. No, I don't There's think not much to miss here. It's kind of awful. At the very beginning of the story, we're told that Monarch has this belt and braces approach to the technology that he's bringing with him that he's got old equipment right beside new equipment, but we're not told why we have any of the equipment to begin with, nor why he didn't just offload the old stuff when he went back home. Is he like a galactic hoarder or something? Maybe that's why he's picking up Earthlings. It's because I I can't do without your company, old man, and you dress so divinely and you dance so beautifully. We're going to have you as for recreationals for the next 35,000 years. <sighs> Tegan has some of her best moments and her worst moments in this story. Mm-hmm. The fact, for instance, that she has two plot-driven superpowers in this story that we will never hear of again. One is this ability to whip up a photorealistic drawing in less than 10 minutes. So realistic, in fact, that two androids can make themselves into facsimiles of this drawing. So she's an excellent draftsman, my dear. It's like, yeah, but we're never going to see her draw a damn thing ever again. I guess I didn't give it. It was photorealistic. I thought it just was sort of like a sketch you'd have on a sewing pattern. Which would be fine. Except when we see the sketch on screen, it's like, damn, Tegan, why didn't you just go into illustration? You're so much better at it than stewardessing, or whatever you'd call it. Unless she went into line as a linguist, because... Apparently, she's able to speak a dialect of an Aborigine language that was spoken 35,000 years ago. That, yes, surprised me. I didn't even think about the age of the dialect that he would have spoken. I just thinking, if would it be usual for a 20-year-old Anglophone to speak that language, to have that opportunity to learn it? Probably not. There's an interesting story there. In fact, A. Davies' uh, comment reminded me of it, that... Janet Fielding insisted that they give actual dialogue to her and to the Aborigine actor because the original script called him to simply speak in gibberish. And she said, mm. no, no, no. Yeah, that's good. good. Yeah. But then it opens up two plot holes. The first one being how is the Tegan knows this dialect from 35,000 years ago or however long it is. Even 3,000 years ago would be too long. And two... Why isn't the fucking TARDIS translating? (laughs) Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. No, the doctor has to ask her what he's saying. It's like, what? Well, you could do one or the other, I feel like. Either say, oh, she's had opportunity to meet someone who speaks the language. She's had opportunity to learn it or study it, but... That wouldn't explain why she knows this 35,000-year-old version of the language, which even if it changes very slowly, would still have changed considerably. So you can you can have her have been exposed to the language, or you can have it be unintelligible to the TARDIS, but it is hard to have both. True. But, yeah, why would it be unintelligible to the TARDIS, which is apparently translating for everybody else, because I have to think the Urbankans probably aren't speaking English. We know Bygone probably isn't. We know Lin Futu probably isn't. Uh, 
<laughs> it's just one of so many problems with this particular script. Except she gets to fly the TARDIS, but happens to screw up one thing, which is fine, which is actually kind of lovely that she keeps her head long enough to actually get it into flight, but happens to forget the one thing she needs to do to actually get it somewhere, and then is willing to say, oop, I've done enough. <laughs> I, I thought it kind of worked as a running joke that Deacon has no idea how to fly the TARDIS, but she thinks she does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the close of the previous book, the Doctor doesn't tell Nissa and Deacon they actually had not flown the TARDIS. Yeah, even though on screen he does. It, it seems to work with the characterization that she is overconfident about things like that enough to convince herself, oh yeah, I know how to fly this, and not mm-hmm. be able to do it. But even the way it's described in this book, it's not so much of a, I know how to do this. You have moments where she's like thinking back to what did the doctor do? What have I seen? Yeah. So she's trying to kind of like yeah. emulate movement. And it's already <laughs> probably programmed correctly. Right. Yeah. She's actually observational mm-hmm. and in a very good way. And that speaks volumes for how strong the character is. That being said, most of the story when she's not breaking out her illustrative skills and breaking out her linguistic skills, she's screaming how scared she is and how much she wants to go home, which admittedly is what a real person would probably do. So I'm I'm sure if JG were joining us on this one, he'd probably say, yeah, she's acting like a real person in these situations. It's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I could see that. Yeah. I feel like the last story, we didn't get as much of that. So this story is kind of back to the way she was in Legopolis, where it's like, damn it, I'm trying to get to work. (laughs) Right? But even there, she's so much more capable, Mm -hmm. because she takes on going to an alien planet for the first time, and barely bats an eye, and is even browbeating the guy who runs the place about running it like a sweatshop. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I'd like to see more of that fieriness, and less of the complaining nature that she's going to come to be known for. Why is there so much emphasis, do you think, on Adric being sexist? God only knows. Have I inferred correctly from your descriptions of the last few months that this is the most hated man in Doctor Who history? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> accurate? Uh-huh. Are the writers just kicking Adric around? <sighs> trying to make him as unappetizing as possible? Well... I, I think it's that Terrence Dudley, one, doesn't know the character very well, and two, is probably going off that original brief for Adric, which said he was more of an artful dodger type, so always trying to work an angle or whatever. That still doesn't explain sexism. Mm-mm. Well, I thought at first it was going to turn out to be him trying to be clever. Yeah. Trying to manipulate Tegan to behave in a certain way, like we see the doctor do later on, where the doctor suggests one thing, knowing that Tegan will probably do the opposite. I thought it was Adric trying to do a little, I don't know, dirty inspiration or something, like inspire her to operate in a more cool headed way by, you know, saying she had no cool or something like that. But no, no, he's just being an ass. He really is. It didn't really go anywhere other than to leave a very ugly taste in our mouths about Adric, and it seemed kind of gratuitous for him to not turn out to be evil. At one point, I thought that this was going to be his last story. Oh, yeah. I did too. I did too, honestly. And that he was going to basically 
turn evil. It wasn't clear. I actually did appreciate that this was, there was some exposition on this later. It was not clear if he was under some kind of undue influence from Monarch or was just that easily persuaded to turn evil. Yeah. Or was just being stupid. And then we did have explanation of that later on, which was a, an appropriate thing to address. But I thought that he was going to betray the Doctor and Tegan and Nyssa and then in some way self-sacrifice at the last moment once he realized his mistake. Mm. I thought that's what they were setting him up for, but nothing that interesting happened. No. His fatal fault was going to be underestimating Tegan. Ah, uh, okay. But, no. <sighs> it's not the sort of casual sexism that we have seen before of one line. It's like three or four or five in a row. It's like so hammered home yeah. that it seemed weird for it to be so ugly and then not have some kind of plot point payoff yeah. later on. You're you're not meant to like Adric in the story, that's for sure. Here's the weird thing. The whole business of not being able to figure out if he's been hypnotized or whether he's going along with Monarch because he's just born along by his force of personality, that is Dick's rehabilitating the script. Because on screen, yeah. It just looks like Adric has decided to change sides. Probably because Waterhouse's performance just doesn't have the necessary nuance to show if Adric's truly play-acting or not. There will be later stories where it's obvious he's play-acting because he's trying to figure out some way to get out of the situation. But again, Waterhouse plays it fairly broadly, so you know that that's what's happening. He doesn't do that here. Yeah, we had an instance of that before. I can't remember which story, but... Stay of Decay. Yeah. And there, you could actually kind of play it off as the vampires had him under their control. But Terrence Dix was writing that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have a feeling he thought, okay, well, this is just a really bad look for a companion. Maybe if we can graft this on to him here. We've already had this mention of monarchs, people being able to hypnotize. Though why it is that the androids can do it too makes no goddamn sense. It was something that needed addressing. I addressed it in a way that was, it was good enough for this story. I was looking at this like, oh, we also have this kind of ugly moment from Nyssa as well. Like Nyssa wondered if Adric's tendency to bossiness came from the fact that he'd been traveling in the TARDIS longer than she had, or was just because he was a male and she was a female. Probably he just had a bossy nature anyway. I guess that's her thinking about him being sexist instead of her just deciding he's garbage for being a dude. <laughs> that is not how Nissa is generally characterized. No. And in fact, mm -hmm. reading the last three books all in a row, you really don't get the sense of this crew just bickering and sniping at each other constantly. No, they seem to actually get along reasonably well in the, the last ones to coalesce actually surprisingly well considering how differently they're painted. And... In the next several stories, we're going to see them kind of get back to that a little bit. But this story, yeah, there are references to them having traveled for longer than the time between Castrovalva and this one. Because the doctor says, oh, he says something along the lines of that he knows how to manipulate Tegan now by doing the opposite of what she's going to expect or whatever. And it's like, has he gotten to know her that well? They've only known each other for two stories. Yeah, he was semi-conscious for the first one. Yeah. Yeah. 
And even when he was semi-conscious, he thought of her as a strong enough person to make her the coordinator. So it's like, okay, so he trusts her, but now she's just annoying to him. Uh, but Adric's, I'm scrolling through my notes and I see one line. Adric is such a fucking moron. <laughs> well, and gratuitously in a way that is not actually entertainingly buffoonish. Exactly right. He doesn't learn better. He doesn't get a comeuppance. He's just unpalatable. Yeah. Except for the doctor tearing him a new one, finally. Mm-hmm. When he sits him down in front of the recreational and he says, okay, you need to sit here and you need to listen to you, young idiot. And he manages to win him over, but Adder could be pushed to the other side by a slight breeze at this point. <laughs> well, once again, why did Matthew Waterhouse agree to do <laughs> this audiobook? I mean, I guess we all have housing costs. Yeah. I Brent, think that's mortgage, a lot of it. Property tax, whatever he has going on, but uh, that, that's probably. I mean, he played it straight. It's money, and they asked him, and no one else wanted <laughs> to do it. <laughs> that's probably true. I'm sure Peter Davison didn't want to do it, and to my knowledge, neither Janet Fielding nor Sarah Sutton have ever done an audiobook. Well, but I will say that it's not like there was an especially dickish delivery of the lines, where like a wink and a nudge of "this is my real perspective on life" or anything like that. Right. Not that there could be. I will say that there is a certain amount of relief and enlightenment didn't turn out to be hot for the doctor and just interested in fashion, that there were actually other things going on there, some proper villainy. Oh, I know, right? I don't understand their names. Yeah. Why are they called that? I expected more more of a revelation. Yeah. Persuasion and enlightenment don't, neither of them really embody either of those attitudes to me. I I thought it was going to be more of a joke about how they were, should be named more like cudgel and stick or something than they arrived on earth. Yeah. But we we didn't quite have that joke either. It's really just a bad word play that Monarch is bringing enlightenment and persuasion to earth. The enlightenment of his having done away with all the things he says he's done away with. Every time I hear Monarch open his mouth in this book, he sounds like Donald Trump. Mm. I've done away with this. I'm the greatest ever. I've done this. I've done this. It's like, no, you haven't. You've essentially just put all of your people into microfiche and (laughs) you've created androids and that's all you've done. You haven't done away with anything, though. If he's been alive this whole time... And I'm surprised Dix didn't go this route with it. I had almost suspect that he has been driven crazy and driven into megalomania by what was originally a very simple mission, which is probably to save his people. And now he wants to do this whole madness of traveling faster than the speed of light so he can go back to the beginning of the universe and he can see God and God will be him. It's like, oh, fucking Christ. How many ideas are in this damn script? But going back to persuasion and enlightenment, I think that's it. It's essentially just saying, yeah, we're going to bring persuasion and enlightenment to the human people. And look, we've even named our two main androids after these things. It's like, ugh. Maybe that's one of the reasons this is such an irksome book, is there are all of these little itches that are never scratched. Mm-hmm. Why does this person have this name? Why does this person speak and behave in this un characteristic way that they haven't in previous books why they're shuttling humans back and forth and you expect even if there's an explanation that's not very good there will be one there's usually not sometimes there is we're told you know why adric's behaving the way he's behaving it's not a very good explanation but it is extant but overall it's yeah 
why is it that Monarch has such a bone against Bygone to the point that he takes away his humanity a couple times? Why can't he let Bygone be Bygone? Oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> You're not. You're completely unrepentant. <laughs> You've been waiting for that. Yeah, that was loaded up in the chamber. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't understand why Monarch just lets them walk around the ship the way he does. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It makes no goddamn sense, does it? It really doesn't. I don't know if it's his own like hubris that he thinks that he has power over them, so he's not that worried. But there continually are moments where it's like, okay, he's going to stop this, right? Okay, he's finally going to stop this, right? It never happens. You know, there's a whole sequence where we're watching the doctor mess up all of his cameras and he's just letting yeah. him do it. He's like, oh, the doctor's on the prowl again. Hmm. We better keep an eye on that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even like him every time being like, where is he at now? And then they tell him and it's like, well, you would know that if the cameras were on too, you idiot. Like, yes. What? Or... Oh, he's left the recreational. He must be tired. Oh, wait, he's back. I guess he must be better. Oh, wait, the cameras are going. And yeah, it's just dumb. <laughs> it is so achingly dumb. The story makes <laughs> no fucking sense. Like you bring some tremble and resonance to the word. <laughs> I hate this story. No one calls For to Doomsday their favorite Davison story because if they did, they'd be as crazy as Monarch because it is a fucking stupid story. It is just ah, oh. sorry. No, 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 no. You're sorry. Among I've been friends. sitting on that for a couple weeks. Hard agree. <laughs> okay, good, good. Oh. I mean, every once in a while, you can see Dick's trying to make something better out of it. Adric is listing all the things that the TARDIS has, and on screen he says, and it has a bathroom, and it's like, oh, God. <laughs> like, <laughs> no ship does, so he changed that to swimming bath for some reason. But apart from that, he really has no interest in making this story any better because it would be throwing good money after bad. There's just no way to do it. There's no way to make the story better because it's so shitty. There's moments like when the doctor's outside trying to get back into the TARDIS. And, you know, <laughs> and the idea of him throwing the ball at the ship and it bouncing back, like it's it's so endearing and kind of cute in a way, but then it's like, well, that wouldn't work. No. <laughs> You know, I, I have often said that the production values in my head are much higher than I know probably were on the episode. But that I imagined and envisioned as the most god-awful thing I had ever seen. It really is. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That clip gets used whenever people want to demonstrate what low-budget CSO <laughs> looks like. That is exactly what I visualized. And maybe this is Dick, once again, putting a little critique there. Because he described it in a very low-budget way that yes. <laughs> seems to have done it justice. Well, Dix can't exactly speak on those things, can he? Because he has overseen a script editor sequence in which the Doctor goes on a spacewalk on a ship that's actually still in motion and somehow manages to get back to the ship while it's still in motion. Yeah. But... This one, yeah, it's a new level of stupidity. And I feel so sorry for poor Peter Davison, who basically has to get up on a set of Kirby wires 
so that he can be lifted in front of a uh, green screen and then have to play act this whole business of throwing a cricket ball and having it bounce back. As he questions his life choices and how long is this contract? Which probably explains two things, why the question marks are on his lapel to begin with (laughs) and why he decided to only do three years. So, Well, are things going to get better for him? Are they going to give him better material? (sighs) Yes and no. They will start giving him better material right around the time that he leaves. Mm. Which is always what happens. Well, these days, possibly. It's the sad part about it, and not to give anything away, but Davison has said of his last story that if all of his stories had been written nearly as well as that one, he would have stayed on another season or two, despite Patrick Troughton giving him the advice to stay only three years, which he then gave to David Tennant, who only stayed three years. So, yeah. Uh, So I have a question about sort of the grand arc of publication history. Yeah. So we're reading these in order of the broadcast of the stories rather than the order of publication. And the last one, uh, if I recall correctly, was available within a year, right, of broadcast. And this one looks like it was also available within a year or two of broadcast. And it's interesting that, like the last one, there is an assumption that we already know what's going on, that we know the Doctor, we know the companions. There is a bit more description and establishment of the characters than in the last novelization that we read that really just threw us in in the the middle of the story. Are we completely past the era when novelizations will take years to come out? Like we've read 80s adaptations or novelizations of Hartnell Mm. stories. Do all of the Fifth Doctor stories come out within a year or so of the episodes being broadcast? I'm glad you asked me that because I am looking that up right now. And Are these to the exception or is this just the new rule? The new rule is that novelizations will appear within a year or two of the stories. When does that start? Because obviously it's not happening right with Hartnell and Troughton. Mm, it happened during Tom Baker's time. Okay. Yeah, we were getting a lot of that in Tom Baker's time, even though there are Tom Baker stories that take until the late 80s to get adapted. Sunmakers, for instance, wasn't published until, and I'm looking that up real quick to make sure I'm not giving false information, 1982. Because it does seem to make a difference, because we used to have an explanation of who Susan and Ian and Barbara were every novel. Yeah. Which certainly made sense when people were reading this, you know, 20 years after the episode's broadcast and were not readily accessible. We're still getting it in Ford to Doomsday. Terrence Sticks actually does give us not the longest explanation, but he does tell us who each character is, and he gives us the whole, that mysterious traveler through time and space spiel that he's very fond of. Yes, a lot more than Castro Valvo, which just really threw us in a and, and And I understand why. So yeah, it's Terrence Dicks. He's still going to maintain enough professionalism to cash the check. <laughs> but it's still, even for him, it's still a different assumption of your familiarity with the characters. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. I'm looking at the uh, listing right now. Kinda, the next book, is going to come out slightly later than this one, but it's still going to be within the same 12-month period. And Soul of Visitation. (laughs) We're getting one more novelization from Terrence Dudley, unfortunately, but that comes out significantly after the fact because that's the latest one. That's the one that doesn't come out until 1987. 
And then the two Dalek novelizations of the stories that Eric Sayward did didn't come out until last year. But that's Eric Sayward for you. Yeah, the rest all came out within a year. of, And that's probably part of the reason why some of them aren't going to have that explanation. It is assumed by the 80s. And I think that's the question you were originally asking. It's assumed by the 80s that the people who have read these know the characters. Because some of the Hartnell novelizations we got from the 80s also do that thing. Well, that the characters are still in the air when the novelization comes out. Some of them were, yes. So I suspect that's a lot of it right there. It probably is very telling, and you said this, Allison, that the audiobook of Forge of Doomsday didn't come out until 2017. There was no huge impetus for an audiobook for that to come out anytime soon. There's no because you demanded it teaser. None. Yeah, no demand at all. Which may be a little unfair because the audiobook of The Five Doctors came out that same year. That being said, the audiobook of The Five Doctors is done by John Coleshaw, who does a perfect impersonation of all five doctors in it. Mm -hmm. That is a brilliant audiobook to listen to as compared to this. And Time Flight and Arc of Infinity, which are going to be both coming up quite soon, those didn't get audio versions until 2021, which maybe tells you something. If I had just read this and not heard the audiobook, I would have been referring to Bygone as Biggin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is a Biggin. He's fairly tall. Isn't it wonderful when that's our takeaway? <laughs> I think the one joke that I... Well, that's actually more of a self-indictment. The one joke that I thought was kind of funny was seems that your craft doctor like the poor is always with us except for the fact that that's a fucking quote from the bible yes and I persuasion I know, <laughs> I know you know that and persuasion has not been on earth since the bible was written so oh. how in the fuck sorry i blew out the audio there didn't i yeah, how point. how in the fuck is he able to quote even paraphrase from the Bible when they haven't even been observing any sort of broadcasts from Earth. You would think the Urbankans would at least be getting broadcasts from Earth, but no, they're instead quoting things that haven't even been fucking published yet. You heard it here, the Tony Witt sputter of rage. Oh my God, I hate the story. But Tony, the answer is simple. Oh, is it? Monarch is God. Oh God. Well, if he is, then he shouldn't have let himself get shrunk down to a minuscule portion by a fucktard like Adric, who doesn't do it on screen, by the way. It's the oh doctor who kills him on screen. Does he at least scream, I'm melting, I'm melting when he's... No, because this would have been a much more entertaining story if he had. Oh, my Lord. Oh, the only entertainment to be had in the story is when you get things like the actor who's playing Persuasion, when he gets his chip removed, he goes into a disco pose for some reason and <laughs> it freezes that way. It's like, I know it's 1982, but damn, girl. I'm realizing now, Tony, that, um, you know, we we are recently watching Trigun and one of the episodes we, one of the episodes we watched, though, was about them taking seeds and taking people to a new planet <laughs> yes and i'm just realizing the parallel between that and and this just kind of the just odd. <laughs> i am surprised at you i am surprised at you for trying to compare 
a story like For the Doomsday. He's surprised to and disappointed. And disappointed. <laughs> trying to compare For the Doomsday to something that is as well-written, well-produced, and well-acted as Trigun is. No, Take I'm, that, I'm, young man. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to compare. I'm, I'm just saying that it just dawned on me about the fact that it is a similar story of... of <laughs> Yes, but probably but not, only. Not, yeah, not anywhere near as fault. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say that that's a little bit like comparing a match with the sun. They're both kind of hot, but apart from that, I'm not sure that the comparison burns out. This story is like a three or four year old, like drawing a circle. And Trigun's <laughs> attempt at the same similar story as like a college level student who studied Chiroscuro and Shadow and knows how to like shade. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like that kind of level. Like this is so elementary and basic and unsuccessful. <laughs> yes, it is. And the weird thing about it is we're going to get another Terrence Dudley story very soon and we're going to get his novelization of it obviously but he'll be novelizing his own yeah this time he will, will it be. be better or worse well that's just it it's a very different story and it works somewhat better because it's a very different story the thing is though i haven't read the book in so long so i don't really have memories of it one way or the other so i'm going to be coming to it newish the same way you all have except i've skimmed through the televised story very recently because it's a two-parter. It was kind of painless. I thought that one sort of, I wouldn't say poignant moment, but one sort of memorable image is the idea that the others taken from the earth are buried in the, Arboretum's not the term they use, but in the gardens on the yes. ships. That actually was a nice moment. Yes, and it's a potentially horrifying one, but there's nothing else that's horrifying about the story. Even the reveal that Bygone's an android and that he's basically recorded on a microchip, that is the one, and I mean the only, effective cliffhanger in the whole story. And even that one is botched up by kind of janky special effects. At least on the page, that reveal is kind of a big moment. And it is. Yeah. But it feels like it's from a different story. Well, and it is a little bit of a reveal that Monarch is still in the flesh time yeah it's still physical when the others are not but i mean i wouldn't call it a gratifying moment no because we're never given an explanation why it's like oh okay well i didn't expect that but yeah. also i'm not interested yeah. it's like i don't care yeah i really yeah. But don't I didn't care. expect it uh, i don't know anything else you want oh <laughs> I'm sorry, I happened to catch the whole astral plane thing, and it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, why are we doing such stupid things like this? Why is it that the computer control infers that the Doctor has something to do with the fifth dimension, and then Monarch says, he can't be, give me another explanation, and Control says, the occult. It's like, the fuck? What? Ugh, I'm sorry, I'm getting... I thought it was mildly funny. I suppose... I actually did think that the joke they were building up to was that instead of Heathrow, they'd end up at Gatwick. <laughs> but that didn't materialize either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They've been to Gatwick before. 
discover the Heathrow. Just a couple of things that are inconsistent or just confusing to me. Yes, there's a, there's a line that says, seeing that the odds were not against his minister, Monarch turned to enlightenment. Help him, help him. If the odds were not against him, why is he sending him to help? Yes. And at one point, Monarch tells Control that he's got to keep an eye on this monarch. Yes. It's like, doesn't he mean the, the doctor? doctor? Oh. And then there was the line that said, the doctor says, I'd go home if I were you. You won't stand in earthly where we're going. Oh, that actually is in the original script. And it's what? kind of uh, an earthly chance. <laughs> so they're missing a word? Yeah, it's meant to. There are certain sayings in British English that... Okay, so that's just a me problem. Got it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The last time we heard a character do something like that was when the master asked Joe Grant if she wanted to stay here for the rest of her natural. Mm. And it's the rest of your natural life. It's this weird little thing about British slang that every once in a while with certain phrases, they'll leave a word out gotcha. and an earthly chance. Yeah, that makes sense. So, it remind, yeah, it reminds me of like Cockney kind of rhyming slang, things like that. Exactly. I was waiting for that moment, in fact, when I watched the uh, televised version, and Peter Davison actually does say it, so it's in the original script. Okay. But you're right. It just comes off weird to me, someone who's not really thinking of that, but yes. Especially since there are so many of those stupid little errors that you kind of expect there to be errors, especially since the entire story is an error. <laughs> oh, I, There's a character I identified with. Okay. The doctor stared down into the pool. A frog stared balefully back at him. <laughs> Identify with the frog and the doctor here. <laughs> oh, me I too. mean, this once again was supposed to be somewhat disposable entertainment. But this is an odd one for establishing a new doctor. Yes. And they do have a concept now of establishing the new doctor. And it's not as entertaining. It's not as disposable as it used to be. It's not as entertaining either. Well, yes, I started to say the wrong word. Maybe it was the right word. But it's not like the Hartnell era, wherein for all the cast knew they'd be recording over and they'd be melting this down and using the film again or something like that. Yeah. There is definitely an awareness that there is a fandom out there. There are already these various novelizations, there is interest. People are going to be tracking the story. You'd think even from a commercial, if not from an artistic point of view, there would be a stronger effort. Dudley's even been told, apparently, to put in continuity references to Raslan and the Eye of Harmony, which Monarch then dismisses as legend. It's like, wait a minute. So you've heard the legend of Raslan and the Eye of Harmony, but you don't know who the Time Lords are? <laughs> How the fuck does that work? I thought I was just missing something there. Okay. No. Mm -mm. Other Rassilon. This is a Rassilon Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a writer who's been told to put something into a script and doesn't actually know what he's putting in. Or it's a script editor, in this case, a very temporary one, because I don't think Eric Sayward had anything to do with this yet. I think it was still Anthony Root who was doing this one. They had a very temporary script editor, and I have a feeling that person was probably told by John Nathan Turner, who had been told by Ian Levine, to stick it in. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not going any further with that one. And look at us. Now we're all fucked. Yes, exactly. 
Oh, God. We haven't really talked about flesh time, but... Do we have to? <laughs> it's so stupid. It's... Or as Adric would say, it's so silly. Yes. Why? Why? It's such a dumb name. Cinemax yeah. needs programming. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were just trying to contrast dream time, but I I am not up on the concept of dream time, but I thought that it did not contrast flesh time, which sounds like a really inappropriate children's program. <laughs> like someone, like the maybe this was the original title of Slim Goodbody or Sporticus with Flesh Time. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. <laughs> or a married couple's euphemism for what they get up to on Saturday nights. I don't know. Yeah. It just like, it ruins actual kind of good moments. Yeah. Like when we realized that Monarch was still organic, which is a better way of saying Flesh Time. That was a good moment for you? I'm I'm getting there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've lost all ability to actually conceptualize between what's real and what's false anymore. So Monarch was still in the flesh time? Oh, yes. He must have discovered some way of artificially prolonging his life without giving up his body. The poison only works on organic matter. Of course. I suspected as much from the beginning, said the doctor modestly. Look at his character, all that arrogance and conceit. Very flesh time. <sighs> Look at his character, all that arrogance and conceit. It's like, yes, that's a good fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made a lot more sense if he had said anyone who was still in the flesh all that time would have gone insane and been yeah. driven to heights of megalomania. <laughs> it's it's so close. It's like it's, it's so close. It's within reach, but no, it's flesh time. Well, it certainly explains one of the comments on Goodreads about the story and I'll point it out when it gets there but yeah it's one of those things that you just want to go in and rewrite the story into something you'll actually like mm. but it's not worth the effort it's just not worth the effort to put that much into it but yeah I found myself doing the same thing trying to think of why is this like this what would be a good explanation for it and then I realized you know what this story was made in 1982 if no one's tried to improve it since then <laughs> There's just no helping it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Shall we go to Goodreads? It's a place other than here, so I think we should go there. <laughs> I think we should take our leave. Yeah, I think so, as we always do. Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your reviews featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, such as why it was written... <laughs> Simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. You're going to die when you hear this. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.35. How? I don't know. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it two and a half stars and says yet again, Adric betrays the doctor, the idiot. Matthew Waterhouse seemed to be method acting. As he pointed out all Peter Davison's mistakes, yes, he did this when Peter Davison and he were filming the story, and told him he'd never be as good as Tom Baker. We could have had his final story early. 
And by the way, I redacted the name of that story. <laughs> so thank you for including it, though. The book is fairly straightforward. There are a few changes, but it's pretty much what we saw on screen. Sadly, it's a dull tale. The backstory is more interesting. As well as Waterhouse's tactlessness, the script was equally objectionable with the Australian Aboriginal language rendered as gibberish, which Janet Fielding insisted had to be changed with the help of the BBC's language department. The book is a little better than the TV version. It wasn't a chore to read, but I won't be reading it again in a hurry. Michael Mills also gives it three stars and says there are a lot of big, brilliant science fiction ideas in here. <laughs> But once set up, they are largely ignored in favor of a distinctly sub Game of Thrones power play. He compares this to Game of Thrones. The headcanon it will induce is a lot better than the story itself. Yeah, our explanations for why these things happened. And finally, Daniel Kukwa gives it three stars and says, It's one of Parents Dick's more straightforward efforts but I do have a soft spot for the story overall, as it was the first Fifth Doctor story, my Doctor, that I watched from start to finish, and it made Peter Davison into my hero. Where else are you going to find giant humanoid frogs ruling over a starship of androids representing ancient Earth cultures? That sounds so much more interesting than what we read. Yes, <laughs> only Doctor Who can do this. It's true. When you look at the description of this story, it sounds like it's going to be a hoot. It isn't. It did often threaten to become a hoot. It did. Then no hoot materialized. Then it just threatened. <laughs> so Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I'm realizing that when you said the Goodreads score, I should have said, to quote David Tennant coming back as the doctor, <laughs> What? <laughs> I had initially written down a two for this book, but I think I'm going to knock that down to 1.5. I just, I, I don't care about anything going on here. And I, I want to, I want to get to know who this doctor is. I want to see this group of companions work together instead of just fighting and bickering amongst themselves. And this story just gives me nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It, it was written. Terrence Dix wrote a book. <laughs> okay. So that's why it's getting 1.5. 1.5. Fair <laughs> enough. Have you ever gone that low? I don't think he has. Mm -mm. No. No. I think even Planet of Giants, you gave like a 2 or 2.5. Yeah. I usually don't go oh. lower than a 2, but like I said, this one's just so... Ugh. Yeah. I get it. Allison, how about you? I'm going to go with a one, but I've gone lower before. I did not take it personally the way the two of you did. I thought it had a few nice moments. Although now I think of it, uh, there being a graveyard in a spaceship, Arboretum isn't that nice moment. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> a couple of ideas that never quite came together, but were potential. I just, I won't remember it later. It did not make me suffer as it made the two of you suffer. Okay. So one star, I mean, it's not, I say it's not offensive. I guess some of the sexist content is, but it's presented as offensive. It's not interesting or memorable. It feels like a disservice to the members of the cast that I am familiar with and to the bit that I know about the characters. And as for me, 
I originally was going to give it a one, but if Dalton's giving it a one, I have to give it a 0. 0.5. I really do. <laughs> I gave it a 1.5. Okay, so. well, yeah. then I'll give it a one. We're going half point increments. Somewhere between a 0. 0.5 and a one. I'm half tempted to do the Trey Corte thing and give it a zero because I would not be upset if this book got burned and I never got a copy of it ever again because it is terrible. And it's not Terrence Dix that I'm slamming here. Terrence Dix has faithfully reproduced this story the way it appeared on screen. As a matter of fact, he's improved on it in a couple of spots, which shows just how bad the original story is. But there's nothing to like about this story. Not only do we really not get a sense of what the Peter Davison doctor is like, and I hate to say this about Daniel Kukwub, I'm amazed the story made Davison into his hero, because there's not much of the fifth doctor in this story. It feels like it could be any doctor story. It feels like Hartnell could have done it. It feels like Troughton could have done it. It feels like Pertwee would have refused to do it, but he would have done it. (laughs) I mean, talk about people refusing to do it as if, like I said, it's offensive content. Yes. I think if I looked at the outline of the script, I would think, okay, they're going to fill things in. You're going to explain it better. It's not odious. It's just not there. But it is odious because even as the actors were doing it, they knew it was a stinker. Peter Davison was unhappy with the inconsistencies in it. Adric felt he was emasculated, which is just a great term for Adric, to be honest. It may be a relief after some of the visuals that uh, you and JG described to well, us last yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> Nissa is nothing but a damsel in distress in this one, and that's not Nissa, sorry. And even Tegan has her few moments of big things, but we never get to see her display these skills again. So why are they even here? The invasion plot makes no sense. The villain makes no sense. None of it makes any fucking sense. I hate the story to death. You know what? I am giving this a 0.5. I hate this. I really do. I'm trying to figure out how it got a 0.5 out of you. It I, well, because um, <laughs> I'm giving Terrence Dix credit. Full on Porky Pig there. I am giving. <laughs> shut up, you. I'm giving David. I'm giving. Now you made me do it. I'm giving Terrence Dix credit for having sat down at a typewriter and punching this out and probably sitting there since he was an Aries too, and I imagine I would be doing this as well, going the paycheck. The paycheck, the mm-hmm. paycheck, and getting it out there. As I said, Terrence Dix wrote a book. <laughs> he wrote a book. Well, and from what you tell us, he put in Valiant Service. Yes. So I'm giving it a 0.5. So there. Thank you both. <laughs> yes. This and was actually quite entertaining. Not maybe the book itself, but the uh, the visceral reaction. Well, I'm so glad you were entertained. And thank you for delight to me, for Tony. giving us your valuable time. <laughs> Next time we get another critical novelization. Shut up. From Terrence Dix as we read his version <laughs> of Kindo. Really, shut the fuck up. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. 
Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. Because why the fuck not? If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, especially if it's Terrence Dudley writing a script, email me directly with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs> it's just as well we don't all record in the same room anymore. God damn it all. I, I wouldn't be in danger of actual violence, but I wouldn't want to be within range of you in a fly swatter. Doctor Who Podcast Network.